Amen. Go ahead, take a seat. We're Chip and Joanna Gaines. We take the worst house in the best neighborhood and we turn it into our client's dream home. Are you guys ready to see your house? <gasps> oh. oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Do you have the guts to take on a fixer upper? Welcome to Grace Bible Church this Sunday morning. My name is Trey Corey, and I'm one of the pastors here at Southwood. And we are thrilled to have you guys here on July 4th weekend. Well, I want you guys to know, seeing a little fixer-upper clip, uh, our family, our little family of four, we have a six-year-old and a four-year-old, that we have kind of had a huge transition this spring in that we have found our first show that is a non-cartoon animated show that we can watch as a family, all right? Uh, we've moved past the VeggieTales uh, kind of flood. We've moved past the Disney Junior flood. And we've kind of found finally a show that is not necessarily all cartoon. And, and it's been Fixer Upper. Sunday afternoons, we kind of lock down after church and in, enjoy an episode as a family. And it's been a lot of fun. The irony and the weird element of it all is that now it's become commonplace in our home. Uh, from the adults to the kids, whether you're four or even six, that someone at some point will normally and naturally bring up the topic of French doors, all right? Knocking down walls, opening up space, uh, a hatred for popcorn ceiling, and an absolute love for shiplap, all right? It is now anyone and everyone like a virus that has infected our home. We are all kind of caught up late to the obsession of Fixer Upper. I love the show and I want to show you guys a clip because even the opening clip of each episode does a couple things that a lot of opening clips of TV shows do. The first is it highlights the cast of the show. You're introduced to Chip and Joanna Gaines if you've never seen the show before. You're also introduced to kind of the purpose or the goal or the, the calling of the show and the couple, what they feel commissioned to go do. They're going to take over these old homes, fix them up for those that have the guts to do it. And then also, if you kind of pay attention, that there's always a few clues dropped into the TV show that highlight for you and set an expectation of what's going to come later on in the episode. Really, as we jump in this morning to the topic of the church, really, uh, Acts chapter 2 is like an opening one-minute scene of any TV show, Fixer Up or any others. Acts chapter 2, as you look at the topic of the church this morning, introduces you and I to the cast of the church and introduces you and I to the calling of the church. And Acts chapter 2 will also provide us a few clues that get sprinkled in along the way that will shape for us an expectation foreshadowing the future of what's to come for the church. That's where we're going to go this morning, Acts chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, pick it up with me. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, we find this. Acts 2 verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when the sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that each of, we hear each of them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Lamelites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongue speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity saying to one another, what does this mean? 
but others were mocking and saying they're full of sweet wine. Uh, Lord God, I thank you for this morning. Uh, I thank you for the chance to gather as the collective church and together around your word, Lord. And I pray that your spirit would teach us, that you would direct us, Lord, that you would help us to see what you have for us individually in our lives, but also collectively as a church. I pray that you'd give us hearts that are open and responsive to you as you would lead and as you would speak as you see fit, Lord. Lord, we ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit, we pray. Amen. Well, as we jump into Acts chapter 2, we're going to kind of highlight for you guys the cast of the church. As Acts chapter 2 opens, we get a sense of a few key characters and a surprising surrounding audience. But of that cast, what's really most interesting and maybe conspicuous for some of us is that the key figure of our New Testament is missing, Jesus Christ. If you know Acts chapter 1, you know the flow of the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus has been crucified. He's resurrected. He's appeared to the disciples and to many others. And then he eventually says to them, I'm going to go away. And he's going to be ascended to the right hand of God. And he tells them, when I ascend, I will send forth the Spirit upon you. And you will be witnesses both in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So as we look at the cast of the church in Acts chapter 2, it's not accidental that Jesus Christ is off the scene, if you will. He's off the stage. And really the focal point of the storyline now shifts to those that he's left behind. And those that he's left behind, we're going to see something from them. And we're going to see something uniquely from those that will gather around and surround this group that he's left behind. Two different elements about the cast of the church that I want you to see this morning. The first comes in this, that there's a unity about the cast or the people of the church. There's a unity about them. Notice the surrounding audience that gathers around them. Notice the first thing that they say about them is an element of unity. Notice verse 7. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? The first thing that the surrounding audience notices about this key set of characters is that there's something common that links them all together. This initial group that linked them all together was a Galilean uh, background, a cultural background. But Peter will pick up a sermon after this moment uh, in which the Spirit comes upon them, narratively speaking. And he's going to speak about something that links this group that's way more significant than just their Galilean descent. Notice where he picks it up in verse 29. Notice what Peter says. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. And that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. What Peter is saying in, in Acts 2, verses 29 to 33 there is that what really marks their similarity, what really characterizes their unity is a common faith in a crucified and resurrected Jesus Christ. And because of their faith in this crucified and resurrected Jesus, just like Jesus said in Acts 1, he sent forth his spirit upon them now, which is why they're speaking in tongues, which is why all this surrounding audience can understand them in their own native language that they know that this group doesn't speak. It's a miracle moment in Acts chapter 2. This moment is the birth of the church and it's miraculous and it's supernatural. And it's supposed to help you and I realize that there's something that unites this new body of believers. There's something that unites this new church that is birthed on Acts chapter 2. And it's their common confession and a crucified and resurrected Jesus Christ. 
And because of that common faith in this uh, crucified and resurrected Jesus, the Spirit has been come upon them now. And for you and I that are part of the church, the Spirit comes and indwells in us now. Which is why Paul will pick it up in uh, 1 Corinthians 12 and he says this, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were made to drink of one Spirit. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, a huge verse for us where we realize that when you and I make a decision to trust in a crucified and resurrected Jesus that has forgiven our sins and we place our faith in that one, the Spirit of God comes upon us. Jesus forgives us of our sins. We enter into a relationship not just with him, but his Spirit places us into a relationship with the church that we're baptized in. We're literally united in with this body of believers in a way that is supernatural, in a way that is absolutely way more significant than most family relationships we can think of. It's absolutely vital that this is the element of unity that the church has, their common confession in a crucified and resurrected Jesus Christ. But it's not just their unity that 1 Corinthians 12 highlights, but also the church's diversity. Notice 1 Corinthians 12 again. We were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. But as we begin to look at the cast of the church, there's not just a unity about that community of believers, but there's also an incredible diversity about that community of believers. Specifically, there's an ethnic diversity. Notice again, uh, verse, uh, verse five. Notice the crowd that gathers around these key disciples. Verse five. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. What had happened in Jerusalem at the time is that you had men and women that had been scattered and now they've come and they've gathered back in Jerusalem. So you have this universal, multi-ethnic, multinational uh, constituency of people that's in Jerusalem that's witnessing this actual moment in Acts 2. All of those in which the Spirit has come upon them have a Galilean descent, but the audience that surrounds them is multinational, multi-ethnic. And so they're from every nation under heaven and they surround and they're witnesses to what's happening. They're the audience that's engaging, that's asking questions. In fact, uh, what you have happening, verses 8 and 11, is a description of their actual uh, locations and backgrounds. But then in verse 17, Peter, as he picks up his sermon, pulls forth from a, a prophecy from Joel, in which in verse 17, notice what it says. It shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on All mankind. That what you have happening here in Acts chapter 2 is not just the birth of the church, but by the very makeup of the audience that's watching this moment, you have a clue that's coming in which you see that the actual makeup and composition of the local church and the universal church is not just going to be of one background, one ethnicity, or one generation, but it's going to be multi-ethnic. In fact, Acts 2 provides you a clue of what's coming. Uh, For those of you who are fixer-upper fans, if you ever notice, this is kind of a spoiler alert, but in the opening scene, like the one I just showed you, they always show a few clues, a few scenes of what's coming down the road. So we used to always guess which house the couple was going to choose. But if you pay attention in the opening episode, you can actually figure out which house they're going to choose. You can see pictures of it later on. Acts 2 does the same thing. It provides you a picture that foreshadows what's coming. Because in Acts 2, they quote from the prophecy of Joel that says, the Spirit will come upon all mankind. But if we fast forward to the end of the church age in Revelation 5, here's what we find happening. As Jesus welcomes his bride, his church to himself, it says this, that Jesus was slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. 
That the great diversity of the church is not just uh, in this ethnicity of this observing audience here in Acts 2. But what we're going to see as the church moves and develops and grows throughout the New Testament and even in our day and age is that what God is doing is this. That he's assembling men and women from every background, every culture, every tribe, every tongue to come eventually and assemble around the throne in worship of a crucified and resurrected Jesus Christ. You get that clue foreshadowed in Acts 2. Revelation 5 shows you the end of the story. Spoiler alert, I'm sorry, but that's where this thing's going. That the church will be made up of men and women from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. A multi-ethnic community united by faith. But the diversity is not just in ethnicity, but it's also in economic situation. It's interesting, if you look at chapter 2, verse 18, notice what the text tells us. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women... Uh, later on in Acts chapter 6, we're going to see widows who are struggling financially and the church will take care of them. James chapter 2, the first part of it, we'll see that in the church there was an f- uh, issue of favoritism going on of the rich over the poor within the church. Economically speaking, the church is an incredibly diverse community as well. And lastly, there's diversity of era or era Lee, if you want. Uh, when you're preaching and you have three words that need to all start with the same letter, you just kind of make up a word, which is what I did here. All right. Uh, you have diversity of age and diversity of generation. All right. Uh, we're going to have young and old. We're going to have not just in a local congregation on a Sunday like this where uh, elementary is not meeting and we have kids with us, which is a great reminder of the great diversity of age in our church. But even the universal church is the collection of the redeemed saints, not just in this generation, but from one generation to the next. And one of the greatest privileges that we have is that we stand on the uh, shoulders of the previous saints and the previous generations that all that we understand and all that we've gained from their church history and tradition that we've learned from, that we stand on their heels, stand on their shoulders of where they've brought us and what we've inherited. That the church is incredibly diverse, not just ethnically, but also economically and even airily in terms of its generational and its age gap and its age diversity. The church is an incredibly diverse community, all united in faith. That's who the church is. That's the cast of the church. And honestly, that's, that's not a huge surprise to you, right? And so what I want to do is look really now at the calling of the church and what we're called to do. We have a sense of who the church is, but I want to highlight for you what we're called to actually do. And in order to do that, I was thinking this week, because I think for a lot of groups, a lot of communities, there's a lot of effort and a lot of time spent in trying to figure out how to get into it and who's out of it, that sometimes the focus gets lost as to what it's supposed to do at all to begin with. In sixth grade, my wife uh, really wanted to join an exclusive and esteemed group in sixth grade called the Babysitter's Club, all right? Uh, There was a sweet girl. I don't think she's actually sweet. She's kind of like a personification of mean girls, all right? But her name was Lori, and she ran the Babysitter's Club. And in order to get into the Babysitter's Club, there was actually an interview and an application, no lie, all right? Not only did you have to apply and be interviewed, but then you had to submit dues in order to pay to get into the club. Once Marcy got into the club, she began to wonder, where did her dues go? But there was no paper trail. There was no money trail. Never could be figured out, all right? But all the effort, all the energy went into getting in. In fact, this group would meet weekly, coming up with adventures that they could do as babysitters, but no one ever called them to babysit. Not one phone call ever came in. The club did nothing, all right? Nothing at all, all right? I think for a lot of communities, there's a lot of focus about who is in and who is out and its exclusiveness, and the church is very different than that. Not in just its inclusiveness, but really the focus is not so much on its cast, but on its calling. 
What has the church been called to do? What I want to do with the remainder of our morning is I want to highlight four things for you guys that the church has been called to do. I'm going to organize them in some ways that kind of highlight some language that Blake introduced back in January that we're going to continue to speak of in these ways to help kind of shape a sense for us, common vocabulary and language about what the church, capital C, and what Grace Bible Church is called to do and called to be uh, as a community of faith united around uh, the uh, crucified and resurrected Jesus Christ. And as we walk through these, I'll also tell you, they're not uh, like, wow, I didn't know that we were supposed to be doing that as a church, all right? And so really the focal point this morning for me, really what I want to walk out for us this morning is this, that as we walk through these, that you would have an opportunity and that you would take the time to think through, where am I individually in each of these areas? How can I grow in each of these areas? And then secondarily, and maybe even more significantly, collectively, how can we grow as a church in these areas? Where are we strong and where are we weak? All right, that's what we're going to try to do this morning. First thing is that we are called to be a people who connect. First thing that we're called to be as a church, a community of men and women uh, with a common faith in Jesus Christ, is that we are to be a people who connect with the Lord first and foremost. That our greatest calling in life is that we would know Jesus Christ and that we would connect with him and that we would be grown and shaped to be into his image. In fact, if you look at the early church here in Acts 2, as the church is birthed in Acts 2, you get a wonderful preview of what they're doing and how they arrange their time by the end of the chapter. Notice verse um, 46 here of chapter 2. Notice what the church is doing. And they begin, uh, verse 46, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple. That day by day, this early group of ragtag believers that had just made a decision to know Jesus Christ, We're rallying together, meeting with one another in person to pursue and to know Jesus Christ and to worship him. That that is our individual calling. That's also our collective calling, which is one of the reasons why we gather uh, in community on Sunday mornings. Is also another reason why we gather in community in a lot of different other facets, because we are trying to pursue to know Jesus Christ more. If you're here this morning, you've never made a decision to know Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and for eternal life, that today can be that day. On a holiday weekend that we celebrate the freedom that we have nationally, there's an even greater freedom that is available to us absolutely freely through the blood and death of Jesus Christ, who died in our place so that we wouldn't have to die, so that we would receive something that we could not ever earn and merit by ourselves. That because of his death on a cross that he took our payment so that we could have forgiveness of sins, that we could have life where there was guilt. And if you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, that's the greatest celebration of freedom you could ever have this weekend. Not a national one, but a spiritual one that doesn't just last for the lifetime of this nation, but lasts for all of eternity. If you don't know Jesus Christ, may today be that day. If you want to talk to someone, come grab one of us. We would love to talk with you through that decision. You can simply pray and to know Christ today. For a lot of us that have already made that decision, the question I want to ask you individually and also even collectively is this. Where is our relationship with Christ today? Is it something that's a vibrant pursuit that you wake up desiring to know and pursue Christ? Or are you kind of in that place where you're going through the motions? Sometimes even worship itself on a Sunday morning is a bit of a barometer as to our heart's response and our intimacy and our desire to proclaim God's goodness and to know and pursue him. Where are you today in that? Does it feel lukewarm? Does it feel like you're going through the motions? Has it been difficult? Has it been trying right now? Are you pressing in to know him in the midst of difficulty? Or are you kind of beginning to drift and, and kind of shake your fists at him? Where are you right now? I, I know there are a lot of holiday activities today and tomorrow, but I'd encourage you, even on a car trip, or take a moment, find a moment away from the lake or from the family and just pull away and say, Lord, I, I want to press back into you. 
I want to resurface and rekindle a passion for you that's grown cold, that's grown weary, and I'm just not where I want to be. Lord, help me. Move back towards me. Help me to see you in your glory. Help me to see you in your radiance. That's my heartbeat for us as a church as well. That even as we gather as a community of faith that we would proclaim and we would move towards Christ to know him more deeply and be passionate for him. But we're also called to be a people connect not just with the Lord, but also connect with one another. Uh, that we would connect with one another in community. It's interesting, I think, as you look at Acts chapter 2, one of the things that most stands out to me about the early church as it's birthed here in Acts 2 is the kind of community that they experience that frankly challenges us in the kind of community that we experience at times. And notice what the text tells us, chapter 2, verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Pick it up, verse 44. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. It's amazing. You had a church of 120 as Acts 2 begins. And by the end of Acts 2, you have a church of 3,120, right? And so all of a sudden you have all of these people that have come into town and the early church is having to care for and provide stability to this early church that's fledgling and that's taking off. And you see a kind of community that came with incredible sacrifice. That wasn't a sense of individual priority, but was a sense of priority to the community, no matter the cost. I'll tell you, I think I'd love for you to think about yourself individually. Have you found community? Are there people who know you well and they can ask you hard questions? Are you, are you in a kind of community that actually requires sacrifice? Or have you built a community in your life that allows you some connections, but you can keep the cost separate from yourself? There, there's something in each one of us that desires so desperately to be known, but also wants to stay hidden at times. There's something that in each one of us that so desperately wants others to give and sacrifice for us, but at times we want to do community at the lowest cost possible. What does your community look like today? Maybe this is your second or third Sunday here at Southwood. Maybe you've been here two or three years at Southwood. What does community look like for you? One of the greatest things that we want to call you to, one of the greatest things that we want to help make available to you is that you would help be able to find community here at Southwood. That you would be able to rally around with people that know Jesus Christ, that are pursuing Jesus Christ, that you'd be known here. That even as a large church, that we would have tight and intimate and significant community and relationships. Well, how do you do that? Where do you find that? A couple different options I'd highlight for you. One is, especially in the summer, home groups. Home groups are one of the most easy way to enter into and be known in a multi-generational environment here at Southwood. That if you haven't found a home group, you haven't found a small group, we want to help you find one of those. Uh, beyond small groups that meet through the week, we also have a series of different Sunday morning groups that I found as you move past the Sunday service are one of the best and easiest ways to begin to build the relationships, to begin to step into community and to be known and to know others. We have two different ones at 9.15 on Sunday morning, just to highlight them for you. Uh, on, at 9.15 on most Sunday mornings, uh, we have our home builders class. It's really made up of a lot of young families that are figuring out this whole parenting thing and that they're wandering together around lost blindly with each other, right? Uh, and then we also have our life builders class that is a wonderful spread from college students all the way to empty nesters, from singles to marrieds, wherever you are, whoever you are. It's a wonderful community that loves people exceedingly well that it always has an open door, a great place if you're looking for community on a Sunday morning to begin to make this place smaller, great opportunity. Two different other Sunday morning groups that meet here on Sundays at 11 o'clock. One is the young adults class, and the second one is the uh, young marrieds and newlywed class. That based on your life stage, there's a great opportunities again, to know some people that are in your life stage and to begin to press into community with them. 
Let me say one last thing about community, even as we organize it at times. Uh, There's often a drift in each one of us to move towards community with people that are just like us in our same life stage, uh, with our same passions, our same hobbies, our same interests, our same political viewpoints, right? And I would challenge you to consider sometimes at times finding community that doesn't always match you exactly. Because sometimes the community that is the most diverse is actually the community that's the most transformative in your life. That will push you, that will challenge you to think differently and to be stretched and to be grown in different areas. That really what we're called to be is a people who connect with the Lord, with one another. If you haven't found community here at Southwood, in the midst of those different opportunities, pursue those. If you've struggled before or you're still struggling, hey, I'd say come grab me personally. I would love to help you. Part of my delight as campus pastor here is to help people find community and find relationships. And if you struggle to do that, come grab me personally, shoot me an email. I would love to help in any way I can. Second thing, uh, they were called to be as a church, a people who connect and also a people who grow. Ephesians chapter four, verses 15 and 16 say this, that we are, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head Christ. So we have this incredible unity as a community of faith rooted and obedient to Jesus Christ and what he's called us to be as we connect with him and with each other is to be a community that's on the move, growing in our faith. I love Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, because it says, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, Christ. This pursuit of growth, I think you see from Acts 2 as well. Uh, Notice what it says uh, in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. I love that phrase here because they're surrounded by the word. They're coming to the word. But I also love Ephesians 4 because you get the idea that what was pursued in growth was not just knowledge, but a growth in all aspects of our person. As Grace Bible Church, we have an incredible value for the word of God, but I will tell you, we do knowledge really, really well. But Ephesians 4 says grow in all aspects. Knowledge is just one aspect of growth alongside of relationships, alongside of spiritual disciplines, alongside of prayer, alongside of giving, alongside of all these other different aspects of growth in terms of who we are, our character, our maturity, our emotions. That growth is an all aspect kind of deal, which really leads to the question of what arena do we have to put ourselves in for that kind of growth to happen? What arena do we put ourselves in for a growth in all aspects of our life to happen? Let me give you guys an illustration of one arena uh, for one of the aspects of growth that I'm pursuing right now, and it's called a rage cage. All right, so this guy uh, took about 12 uh, dudes uh, to disassemble at a friend's house, okay? Uh, Put on flatbed trucks and transport and reassemble in my backyard. It's about 20 by 20 foot, all right? And I will tell you the level of... um, intimidation when this thing arrived, uh, exceedingly high. Okay. Uh, so much so that I, uh, as it was assembled, uh, I'll tell you, I have an elliptical in our bedroom, uh, that I usually use more to hang my shirt on after work than I use to exercise. All right. Which is a certain level of shame. All right. But when a rage cage is sitting in your backyard and you don't use it, that's a whole nother level of shame. Right. So this thing is an arena for growth that I'm trying to pursue physically. So I want you guys to say, know this, that you've known me now pre-cage you're going to have the opportunity to now know me post-cage, all right? Just imagine Jason Bourne, and you kind of have the right trajectory, all right? That's where we're headed, all right? I don't understand why y'all are laughing. All right, I'm just kidding. I don't really have that frame, do I, right? So, so I'm pursuing this with a bunch of guys. This is the arena for growth. And here's the reality. Here's the honest truth. This thing's set in my backyard, and for two weeks, I, 
I researched and read how to use it, okay? About one week in, I mean, I pretty much done all the research I could. By the second week, I really wasn't amassing anything, but I wanted to just stay in the classroom part of learning and growth and not move to the actual gym part of, cl- of learning and growth, all right? But the reality is, I think so many of us do that spiritually speaking. That when we think about growth, especially as a Bible church, a grace Bible church, we're thinking about knowledge, we're thinking about the word of God, and we kind of stick in that learning by knowledge mindset. What I love, though, is is how Ephesians 4 describes the word of God. Notice what it says here. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. How does the writer of Hebrews depict the word of God? It's nothing like a textbook, is it? It's nothing like a classroom for which you amass knowledge. That's not how Hebrews depicts what the word of God is supposed to do in our lives. I think by and, by and far for us in a Western university setting at a Bible church especially, we take spiritual learning as a knowledge dump and we amass more and more and more knowledge. And we're quite comfortable in a classroom, but when it comes time to step into the cage or into a gym or into a lab of life, it's much easier for us to stay theoretical and knowledge-driven than it is for us to actually put it into practice collectively as a church, and I would argue probably for many of us individually. So what I want to ask you this morning is simply kind of where are you in your own spiritual life? Where is there a, a gap of your knowledge and your practice? Where, where it's not about needing more training or needing another Bible study, but it's about simply stepping out and beginning to grow by the experience of being stretched and, and faithfully obeying. You haven't learned until you have applied. And for many of us, we think learning is about knowledge, understanding, and we miss the fact that you really haven't learned until that knowledge has sunk in and transformed us and caused us to live differently. We do knowledge in a classroom really well. But for you individually, where is it that that knowledge hasn't penetrated the heart or hasn't actually transformed your life yet? Where is the gap for you? Is it an area emotionally? Is it an area relationally? Uh, Is it an area with your money? an element or an area of your time and the choices you make or even an area of relationships and how you respond to family, how you respond in your career, your coworkers, where is it? Where is that gap? Where is it God saying, I want you to grow in all aspects and this is the aspect that you've overlooked and that you've dismissed and it's now time to focus. Stop avoiding my, my gentle pleading. We're called to be a people that are connecting with the Lord, with each other and who are growing And as we grow, really, much growth really causes us eventually to move into the gym or move into exercise, which is why we're also to be a people who serve. We're to be a people who serve. You know, it's interesting. I I think for a lot of us, as we think about serving, uh, it's a challenging deal. And I think for a lot of us, as we think about serving, your natural expectation is, as I talk about two different areas that you can serve, the first is obvious. You kind of expected it coming, which is within the church. That part of what we want to do as a church is, is help you discover your gifts and help you put them into practice and to serve in a ministry in some form or fashion here within our local church, within this local community. That each, every single one of you is uniquely gifted by God himself, if you know Jesus, to serve him and to make his glory known and to see his kingdom established. And that we can do that in a whole host of ways. And so if you go to our webpage, we're actually overhauling the whole serve page because we want to make it even easier for you to dis- discover your gifts and discover how to put them into practice right here at Grace Bible Church. One of our greatest hopes for you is that you would find community here at Grace and that you'd find a ministry here at Grace, that you'd find a place where you could serve and that you could lead and that you could contribute. 
And honestly, I'll tell you guys, summer is a very interesting time for a lot of our college students as they're gone. That summer looks different for us in a worship service. Summer looks different for us even in a lot of our ministries. And summer reveals something specific I I think I've seen as I've been watching more and more outside of our college ministry and this. I would argue that there's an area of our church and a ministry of our church that we have, in by and large, said college students, run after it. <laughs> Good luck out there. And it's in our nursery and our elementary ministry to kids. That by and large, we said college students, we are so grateful to have you serve. And they serve in every arena and every ministry of our church, especially in nursery and elementary. But in the summer, guess who's not here? Them. Which reveals really that by and large, honestly, I'm, I'm going to kind of get in some people's grill here. Our families have said, thank you, college students. We're looking forward to a break. And what I want to challenge our families mind this as well is that we begin to step actually into that arena more so. One of the reasons why we do baby dedications up here on a Sunday morning is not just uh, for a family like the Binghams who was up here a few weeks ago to dedicate their own kid to the Lord. But it's an opportunity to remind our church body collectively our responsibility is to help raise them to know Jesus Christ. Not just those that are utilizing the nursery and the elementary, but to, 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 for our whole church bodies to come alongside and to raise these kids up to know the Lord. Uh, we talk about raising up next generation leaders to reach our world for Christ, and we typically immediately think about youth in college. And yet, that's the next generation that is one of the most impressionable and one of the most strategic that we collectively have an opportunity to come and love and step into and serve. I'll be honest, I've had an opportunity, even in the midst of some of my own kind of seeing new parts of our church, getting to be with Lisa Sledge and our elementary ministry, getting to be with Aaron Richards and our nursery ministry. And I will tell you, stepping in, serving and seeing has upped my own game as a parent. (laughs) Uh, And coming alongside of them, it's helped me as I come back home to figure out how better to lead my family and serve our family. And that's our desire as a church, to help serve these kids, but also to help train you guys as parents that are our parents or will one day be parents to figure out how to lead and shepherd the young generation. One of my heartbeats would be come fall that as we jump into a nursery and elementary again, that we could have an adult and a college student side by side in every classroom leaning on each of their unique experiences, each of their unique giftings for the betterment of those kids in that ministry. I would love to see each family, each adult, serving at least once a quarter, either in elementary or in nursery, shepherding that next generation in a way that is so strategic, so significant in the life of our local church. I would love to see that change in our culture. Uh, So if you have questions or if you want to jump into that, uh, you can either email gracekids at grace-bible.org or you can just go talk to Aaron Richards this morning (laughs) right after church or Lisa Sledge as we resume elementary next Sunday. Great opportunities to step in, great opportunities to really jump in to the life of our church, to the ministry of our church, what's happening with these kids. Also, uh, you you expect the internal serve in the church thing, but I want to kind of push the argument and push the envelope even past that to say that we're also called as a local church to serve within the city and the campus. Churches are really good at creating all kinds of opportunities for you guys to come find ways to use your gifts and serve and use all of your time within the walls of our church and the programs of our church. And if we do that, we've really missed the calling of what the church is called to do and what we're called to be. Because you aren't just meant to serve within the church only, but you're also meant to serve outside of the church, in the city, in the community, and on the campus. I'll tell you, uh, it's an interesting quote that I think shows a little bit about the church's response to culture. It's one of my favorite quotes from a guy named Don Eberly, and he says this. The Christians are understandably dismayed that the culture has become unhitched from its Judeo-Christian roots. 
However, they refuse to acknowledge that in literally millions of decisions made by Christians themselves, this unhitching was produced by a massive retreat from the intellectual, cultural, and philanthropic life of the nation. While evangelicals count millions of members, the number of evangelicals serving at the top of America's powerful culture-shaping institutions like a major university or a publishing house could be seated in a single school bus. A couple things I love for that quote. One is this, that it highlights that by and large, many evangelicals, as we looked at the culture, we've just said, I don't know what to do. And we've retreated out of it. And we've also missed that in a lot of those places that we retreated out of, they were opportunities to serve the city and the community if we had just stayed engaged and just stayed there. But by now we look at our culture and we go, what happened to our culture? And we're blaming as if that the problem is out there when really, in many ways, we've pulled back and we've retreated into a Christian little bubble and bunker at times. And we've missed a call to the city and the community at large. That's a call that my college roommates and I did not miss in college, all right? You have to understand that my sophomore year, my college roommates and I went to a restaurant, a Mexican restaurant in town, and the waitress who was trying to work us over for a good tip was incredibly, incredibly wise, and she began to refer to us as stallions, okay? Which, I mean, as a bunch of sophomore dudes in college, they're like... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're stallions, all right? Which, which, which led then to the, uh, the decision to name our apartment the stables, because where else do stallions reside but a stables, right? And then it became our mission and vision, because we knew who was in this club, uh, to think about what are we going to do? How can we be a blessing to the campus? And so in our great wisdom, we did not want to hoard our devilish good looks, our humor to ourselves. And so we decided that we would be a blessing to the ladies of Texas A&M University with our yearly uh, winter formal dances and gravitate parties in the spring, all right? And so great were these blessings that we wanted to commemorate them with t-shirts as well for these ladies, all right? So we produced t-shirt after t-shirt with date party after date party. We were not a sorority or a fraternity, but we just wanted to be a blessing to the campus. All right. And so these sweet ladies walked right, walked away with t-shirts. All right. They had like a horse, like logo kind of jumping off of it. It was the craziest thing imaginable. All right. But we recognized there was a blessing that we could have internally, but we wanted to turn it loose upon everybody. All right. Now that was crazy. Okay. Absolutely crazy. But really that's what the church is meant to be, that there's a blessing that we appreciate in our own community with one another, but we're meant to turn that blessing out to the city and the community at large. But We often miss that. We often miss that. Well, how do we do that as a local body? How do we do that as a local church? Uh, there's a series of different ways I want to highlight for you because maybe you've not thought about your faith moving into the city or you've not thought about your faith moving into the community. How do we do that as a local church? Uh, there's a series of big strategic events that we have each and every year that we call the Big Five that we utilize to help you guys uh, enter into the community and help our church have a presence in the city at large. The first starts off in August with the giveaway. Uh, We're not giving away international students, but we're giving away furniture to international students, all right? Often a big misnomer, all right? Uh, so we're, and so these international students are coming into America or definitely coming into College Station for the first time. And here we have an opportunity to move towards them with hospitality and furniture uh, and build a relationship in which we get to eventually share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, the giveaway moves into Country Fair in October, which the whole city comes to our parking lot right here. Why? Because we want to have a presence in the city and we want to move towards the city in a loving way that hosts them and draws them in. Similarly, we have the Christmas co-op in December in which we're inviting families that cannot purchase gifts fully for their own kids to come in and they can purchase gifts here at a discounted price. We have the opportunity to build relationships with those families and to see community established and see community built. 
which moves into Easter parties and eventually the summer we just came off of Backyard Bible Club, a different neighborhood outreach strategy and opportunity so that we can be building relationships with our community and with our city to be a blessing in the city. We also have a series of of strategic partnerships with community outreach organizations in town, some serving the needy, some serving orphans, some serving the poor, some serving widows, a whole host of different opportunities to serve in our city for your small groups, for you guys as individuals, that we want to help thrust you into the city to see the needs of the city, to build relationships in the city so that we're a church that's impacting and blessing the city at large. Not holding up in a bunker, making proclamations of what we believe to be true all by ourselves, but entering into our city to extend our arms in love and compassion to make a difference. Last way that we really want to help equip you guys as we think about the city at large is that for many of you college students who are looking to get a job one day or for you guys that are working or even stay-at-home moms that are working at home, uh, we want to help you reimagine your work as a vocation and a, what God has commissioned you to because your career may be one of the most significant and one of the most strategic ways that God uses you to establish his kingdom in the city. And your career is not a distraction to his kingdom purposes, but it's the very venue by which he transforms you and utilizes you in the city to bless the city and to make a difference. Your career is not a distraction to his calling and purposes in your life. It's the very venue and maybe one of the most strategic venues in which he works and which he calls you and uses you in the city. It's really interesting as we think about engaging the city in that way because I read a book uh, uh, this May uh, by the Barna Group uh, called Unchurched and he says this about our culture and the questions our culture is asking today. Notice what he says. 30 years ago, the most effective form of evangelism was widely believed to be a straight out, in your face, confront the sinner declaration of salvation through Christ. So we would just show up and we proclaim, here's what we believe. Uh, and then in that day and time, if you're older, you probably remember Josh McDowell and a lot of these resources that got created, evidence that demands a verdict, case for Christ. It was all about answering the culture's questions, rationally speaking about evidence for our faith. 30 years ago, that was really the questions the culture was asking, and that was our way of providing an answer as we shared the gospel with them, all right? He goes on and he says, A decade or two ago, evangelism shifted to a focus on personal relationships, cultivated with eternity in mind. The idea was our culture moved from a modernism uh, focal point on science and rationale to a postmodernism viewpoint, which was all about experience and relationship. And so as the church engaged the culture, they continued to share the gospel. But what became really vital, the bridges that were getting built were relational ones so that the gospel could be heard and could make an impact. All right. But here's what he says. Here's what I want you guys to hear next. We believe we're undergoing another shift today. Wherein doing good in the world is a powerful apologetic to those who are seeking God. Evangelism can happen in the workplace where Christian leaders run businesses with a biblical view of people, not taking advantage of them, but aspiring to help them flourish. Evangelism can happen in the social sector where we can show how much Jesus cares about the least of these. What the Barna Group is saying is that you and I must continue to share the gospel. But what our culture is asking is not so much what we believe or even what we stand against, because they're quite clear what we stand against. What they're asking is, why does your faith and why does the gospel that you believe matter at all? What difference does it make? What problems does it solve? How are you different than anyone else? And really community outreach, engagement in the city, uh, beyond the programs and the walls of our church, shows the city that we care about the city, that we're engaging the loss, that we're walking across the street, we're building a relationship, we're stepping into a workplace, benefiting the employees that are there. 
And all of a sudden we have an apologetic. We have a way of answering the questions that the culture is asking as we engage. Not retreating into a bunker and doing our own thing and having our own Bible studies. But we're engaging in the city to show that we care for the city. And in that bridge that's being built of love and compassion and common interest, then we get to share the gospel. And it's heard differently than when we stay in our bunkers and we just scream it from the hilltops. That makes sense? Because the last thing that we do is we don't just be a people who connect, grow, serve within the church and within the city. But because of that, we become a people who multiply. Two different ways. Uh, we have the opportunity to share our faith and we have the opportunity to plant churches. Uh, for our deacons who are going to be serving communion, you guys are welcome to move toward the back and go uh, kind of get in position with it and prepare it. Uh, but as we think about what the church has been called to, that as we engage in our city, as we engage in our community, that to help solve the problems that exist, to show that we care, that we have compassion, that we're vested, it builds a bridge for us to begin to speak of the gospel and why our conduct matters at all. That we believe in our crucified and our resurrected Jesus Christ who has paid the penalty for sins and so we have the opportunity to share our faith. A great Samaritan story is a wonderful story but it ends with a simple question and that's this. Who is your neighbor? I want to ask you this morning as you think about your apartment complex, as you think about your street or your cul-de-sac, who is your neighbor? Do you know your neighbors? Can you name them off and walk them through, can you walk through the street knowing each name of the neighbor that's in your street? If you don't, one of the greatest exercises and homeworks that you have this morning is that you would walk out and you spend the next month trying to know and build bridges with the very people that are either on your apartment corridor or that are on your street. Sometimes it just means walking across the street, beginning to build a relationship, beginning to build a bridge. Lastly, uh, that we're called to plant churches, both here locally in the Bryan College Station area, but also globally. I'll tell you that Chris McGuffey, our pastor of outreach, walks around in his backpack with a list of all the unreached people groups in our nation or in our world. That as a local church, we want to reach this community, but we also want to reach the communities where the gospel has not yet penetrated and the church has not been established. That is our call. And as we begin to think about the cast of the church and the calling of the church, it's a wonderful opportunity this morning for us to celebrate communion. You guys are welcome to go ahead and begin to pass it out. And I think it's a wonderful opportunity, especially as we look at what the church is, who the church is, what the church is called to do, that we would come together this morning because this is also something that, that God has called the church to do, and that's celebrate communion. I love in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I love in 1 Corinthians 11 as Paul speaks of communion. He says this. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So as the elements are being passed out, let me just say I, I love that the communion provides us a wonderful reminder of the reason why we are even in the church is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And also the calling of the church is to proclaim that very message. And communion is a reminder of what God is here and a reminder of what we proclaim. And as he goes on, he says this, verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in do so, doing so, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and he who drinks, uh, uh, drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. And so let me ask, before we take the elements this morning, as you think about the calling of the church, for you, where is the area that the Lord's called you this morning? Is it community-based? Or, or does you feel like the Lord's calling you to help establish community where you see a lacking? Maybe for you, it's initiating community, taking a risk and actually being known and putting yourself out there. And that's scary. And the Lord's saying, it's time. It's time for you to move from anonymity to be known. Maybe for you, it's an area of growth, an area that you've recognized for a while. Yeah, you have a lot of knowledge, but that knowledge hasn't always translated an actual area of life 
there's an area of your life that God says, all right, today, we're going to look at this. It's time to grow in this area. Maybe it's also an area of service that you know the Lord's been calling you and prodding you to invest your life in another in some form or fashion, whether it's here at Grace Bible or whether it's outside in our city, in our community, in a fresh and a new way. What is it? Will you push aside that voice or will you move towards him and say, all right, Lord, yes. So Paul says this, he says, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take a breath. In the same way, he threw the cup also after supper saying, the cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 